Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Y'all, can we give the Lord a hand clap for what he did this couple of weeks, man? Guys, we have had so many gospel conversations with children. We saw yesterday, we saw people from the community come out that we'd never met before. Y'all, let me tell you, Jesus is doing a work at mercy, and he wants you to be a part of it. So let me ask you, what's your next step? What's your next step? Is it discipling the next generation? Is it engaging our community with the gospel? He has something for you. So we invite you into that. All right, so if you guys don't know me, what's up, Providence Road? My bad. I'm supposed to do that every time. So good to see y'all. We love y'all. If you don't know me, my name is Joseph. I serve as one of the pastors here. And y'all, we did it, right? Like, we made it to the end of 2 Samuel. Come on, give it up. Yeah. Some of y'all been praying, like, let us get to the end of this book, and here we are. All right, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And while you're doing that, let me just tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I already said my name is Joseph. I'm married to my lovely wife, Kaylin. We have two children. And something you may not know is that I'm a Sixers fan. Yeah, yeah, the one guy in the room. All right. And now, contrary to popular belief, like, being a Sixers fan is actually kind of rough. And I see some of the eyes in here like, oh, here we go, another sports analogy. Yay, sports, I love them. First off, I can hear your sarcasm. All right? And secondly, your disappointment in this analogy is kind of like our disappointment of being a Sixers fan. So this is for you. Okay? So let me explain why it's hard being a Sixers fan. Okay, so in June 2014... We selected, with the third overall pick, Joel Embiid. He's a beast, right? We were one year into a strategy that prioritized losing so that we could get higher draft picks, right? So this this strategy was infamously known as the process. And so in 2014, we won 18 games. It was tough. It was hard. In 2015, we won eight fewer games. That was worse. In 2016, we improved our record to a whomping 28 wins, and we were kind of excited in the city, right? And all the while, the general manager, he was telling us, like, guys, trust me, I have a master plan. He was imploring us to trust the process. This became our battle cry in the city. We would chant it at games, trust the process. Joel Embiid, right, he was the MVP last year. His nickname is The Process, right? Like, it's who we became. We embraced it, right? We, we trusted the process. So ask me, did it work? Go ahead, ask me. Nah, it didn't work. <laughs> All right? Because, get this, only one 
of the six high draft picks we made are all-stars last year. Three of them are no longer in the league. And it's been two decades, two decades since we made it past the second round of the playoffs. So y'all, it didn't work. And I'm not that bitter, but a a little bit. Um, Eventually, our GM, Sam Hankey, he got got fired. He deserves to, (laughs) right? I never want anyone to lose their job, but it's sports, so whatever. (laughs) But get this. Even though the plan didn't work for us, there was something to it. You see, the NBA had been structured in a way that losing was advantageous for teams that were bad now, but wanted to be transformed into contenders in the future. You see, what Sam Hankey believed was that losing this season would make them better in seasons to come. So in our text today, we're going to see David, our main character, and he's going to take an L. And even more perplexing, it's a loss that God intended. But what we will see is that David needed to be transformed so that God would allow him to fail in that moment in order that he may be fruitful in seasons to come. I want to title today's sermon, Trust the Process. Today we're going to see God be sovereign over sin for the sake of salvation and sanctification. And yet, yes, you, you heard me right. Today we are going to see God be sovereign over sin. He's going to ordain it. Verse one is gonna hit us with a theological bombshell. God is gonna stir David in the text to do what the text clearly presents as sin. We'll see this soon. So what's going on here? We're going to camp out in verse 1 for a little bit. We're going to ask the theological question. We're going to deal with the bomb. And then after we've done that sufficiently, we will jump into the story and see what happens when God is sovereign over sin in David's life. So y'all ready? All right, here we go. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, who? Who can stand before your people and proclaim your word? Not I. But you are good. And you are kind. And you love us. So you've given us your word. Lord, would you help us to see you more clearly this morning? Oh God, would you stand up in my body? Would you proclaim what only you desire to be said? For the good of your church, name of your glory. Jesus, we pray all this in your perfect name. Amen. All right. Here we go. We're going to see God be sovereign over sin. Verse 1. The Lord's anger burned against Israel again. And he stirred up David against them to say, go and count the people of Israel and Judah. You see, verse 1 begins with a familiar refrain. We see this over and over again in scripture. God was angry with Israel. You see, Israel, God's chosen people, were constantly rebelling against him, constantly worshiping idols, constantly rejecting his love. They were rebellious in the desert, worshiping a golden calf. They were rebellious under the judges. They were rebellious under King Saul. They've been rebellious under King David. And in all the future they see, 
there will be rebellious king after king after king. This is the unfortunate pattern of the Old Testament. The people repel, rebel. God is angered. Wash, rinse, repeat. And just, just as we think we're settling into something familiar, we are hit with the bombshell. We are plunged into complex, nuanced disorientation. God stirs David to sin. The text is clear. This census of verse 1 is sin. In verse 2, Joab is going to try to talk him out of it. In verse 10, David is going to be filled with deep regret. In verse 16, God is going to give the punishment. This is sin, and yet God stirred him to it. So before we dive into the story, we have to deal with this. We can't pretend like this isn't here. Verse 1 is puzzling to us. There are so many questions. Like, if God is angry, why is his punishment to the people counting them? Right? Like, what's wrong with David counting his own people? Why is that counting a sin? And most pressing of all, is God actually leading David to sin? We are stepping into a foreign context, uncharted territory. But do me a favor and let's be curious this morning. Like we've seen it, so we can't pretend like it's not here. Scripture tells us that it's all, all Scripture is God-breathed, intricately connected, and telling one comprehensive story. So what is going on here? Well, the Bible loves it when we ask a question. So can I just give us a quick Bible lit reading lesson really quickly? One thing that we say, theologians say, is that Scripture will interpret Scripture. Right? So when you get a hard Bible passage, you want to look and see where else this is in the Bible. So let's employ this technique really quickly because the devil is in the details. Not like literally, he's in the details. So for those of you who are new to the Bible, what we get in the book of First and Second Chronicles is a retelling of the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. It's telling the same stories over and over again with a little bit distinction in the details, giving us a different angle on what was happening in the moment. So why is this important? Because when we stumble upon this story in 2 Samuel 24, in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, right, two different passages, same story, we see this in verse 1. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Hmm. Same story, but two different accounts. In 1 Samuel, I mean in 2 Samuel, God incited the people, David against the people, and in 1 Chronicles, Satan incites David against the people. Are y'all still with me? Y'all following? So, So which is it? Is it God or is it Satan? How do we reconcile the two? Y'all remember our Bible lesson? Okay, let's let's ask ourselves, where else do we see this? Well, there's Job. Right? In Job chapter 1, we see the enemy sneaking into God's camp. God sees him immediately, asks him where he's been, and he's like, yo, I've just been roaming the earth. And God's like, oh, you've been on earth? And, And this strange thing happens. God highlights Job for his righteousness. He says, if you've been on the earth, have you seen my servant Job? 
He is righteous. He loves me. And the devil's like, he only loves you because you give him stuff. And God's like, okay, let's test it. Take it all away. So then we must ask ourselves, is it God who incites Job's suffering or was it Satan? Or, or better yet, what about Genesis 37? Right, we see the sinful hearts of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. But what we will find out is that it was God who ordained Joseph's going from slave to prisoner, prisoner to prince. And so, we see that the very sin of the brothers betraying him leads to their redemption. Their sin literally led to Joseph going ahead of them for the sake of their salvation. It seems to me then that Satan was unknowingly executing God's plan. You see, there's this pattern in Scripture of God checkmating Satan, restoring what's broken, and sanctifying sinners all for our good. If we look closely, we see God is executing his perfect plan through imperfect people. Therefore, Job would declare that, I thought I knew him, but now my eyes have seen his glory. And, and Joseph would say that my enslavement was actually what God meant for good. So then we ask ourselves, was it God or was it Satan? And the answer is yes. Turn to your neighbor and tell him to trust the process. You see, Satan was at work, but God was sovereign over it. So hear me, Christian. If God could orchestrate the sin of the Romans and the Jews to bring about the death, burial, and resurrection of his son for the sake of the salvation of the world, then he is more than able to sanctify you in the midst of your struggle with sin. What if God is more concerned with who you are becoming than how you are performing? Y'all ain't with me. Y'all ain't with me. Here's what we need to see. Our sovereign God is able to be sovereign over sin for our good without contaminating his holiness. If we, as finite men and women, can send our doctors to handle deadly viruses for the sake of a vaccine that heals without contaminating them, then surely our God can do the same. So, here's what we're going to see in the rest of the story as it plays out. That God is sovereign over David's sin for David's good. So let's pick back up in the story. Y'all ready? Let's take a deep breath. All right, here we go. Here's what we're going to see in verse 2. We're going to see David's sin, right? David is saying to the people, yo, let's go count the army. We need to see what we got going on. And Joab spots the trouble David sees before he sees it. Joab's reply in verse 3 is this. He says, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are while my Lord the king looks on, but why does the Lord my king want to do this? And y'all, this is such a good question, right? It's the question God wanted answered. You see, it wasn't that David was counting the people, it was why he was counting the people. And there's this detail here in both verses 3 and 4. 
David's not interested in numbering the people. He's interested, if you look at verse 3, in numbering the troops. It's the troops in verse 4. He wanted to count his army. He wanted to boast in his strength. He wanted to accentuate his glory. He wanted to take up his security in his own hand, so he counted the army. What you doing, David? But y'all, before we get all high and mighty on David, we need to look a little bit in the mirror. Right? Like, what are you counting that's replacing your hope in God? Is it the number of years till you retire? Is it the number of calories you've eaten today? Is it the time that's passed since you committed that last sin? Oh, y'all ain't with me. Okay, what about this? What are you counting on? Is it your intellect? The success of your children? The end of your singleness? Is it the promotion at that job? The size of your bank account? The approval of your peers? David's sin was hiding in his heart. It was his pride. And it was settled deep in there. So God stirred it to the surface. This is what we see in God stirring David. His sin was hidden deep here, but now it worked out to his hands. Friends, there are sinful and broken things hiding in our hearts. And as God refines us, he's imploring us to trust the process. Hidden deep in David's heart was this lack of trust in the God who had delivered him from the giant Goliath. And if God would have allowed David to keep going on the path he was on, it would have only led to his destruction. So let me say this clearly. The God who works all things for good, to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, does not exclude himself from using your sin for your good. And the God who is faithful and just to complete the work he began in you, is not as deterred as you are by your sin. God has a purpose in our fallen nature. It is for our humility, for our repentance, and for our sanctification. But, hear me, there is another side of this coin. You see, unfortunately, God is not the only one with a plan for your life. So please don't hear me say, God has a plan for your sin, it's inconsequential, he'll deal with it. No, don't hear me say that. You should hate your sin. You should run from it because on the other side of that coin, left unchecked and unrepented of, all sin leads to death. See, God's purpose in our fallenness is our repentance and our humility, but we do have an enemy. And his purposes for our sin is the hardening of our hearts for the sake of our death. So, so maybe a word picture will help us. Imagine a shovel. You see it? Kind of heavy. We'll say it's pointy at the top. All right. One shovel in the hands of two different men. One of them is an archaeologist and the other is a grave digger. Would each man not use this shovel differently? So where God is using the shovel in your life to expose and remove your sin, the devil wants to use that same tool to bury you. 
The distinction of being a Christian's brothers and sisters is not whether or not there is a presence of sin. It's not the presence of the shovel or the absence of the shovel. Instead, it's whether or not that shovel is being used to expose and renew. Or is it digging deeper and deeper into sin, hardening your heart and preparing your grave? As we continue in our story, we will see that David doesn't keep digging, but instead he repented and he found God to be sovereign over his sin for the sake of his sanctification. Let's pick up in the story. Verse five through nine is just going to tell us how they go and count the people. They go and count them in a circle. They count a bunch of people. And by the time we get to verse 10, David's conscience troubled him. Remember, we said David was going to confess this as sin. He's going to be full of regret. And his conscience has troubled him after he took the census of the troop. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. As we turn the page of this story, what do we find? We find David repenting of the sin of pride that once hid unchecked in his heart. His sin, get this, had exposed his sinfulness. He wasn't as holy as he once thought he was. And the text tells us that his conscience is troubling him. Can you hear the regret in his voice? Have you been there? I've been very foolish. Please take away your servant's guilt. Deep regret. But can I submit to you something? That God was up to something even in the midst of his sin. God was sovereign over David's sin and it blows our minds and we can't get our heads around it. But God wants us to trust the process. Y'all, you know that all David wanted was to be sinless. Look at his life. The carnage that sin had caused. He had lost three children due to his own sin. He had caused a civil war due to his passivity. You know that all he wanted was to be done with sin, and yet God ordained it again. That he fall again. Y'all, can I be honest? This frustrates me. This angers me. I go at it with God about this. Is there anyone else wanting to be further along than they are right now? Tired of their same old temptations? Tired of their same old sins? Tired of their same old brokenness? Does anybody else wish that conviction would come before the sin? I know I do. God, why won't you change me? As I express that to the Lord, this week, this week, I heard him say, okay, do you really think you'll do a better job? Like, if you were in charge, would you sympathize with sinners? If, if you were in charge, would you remember that you need me? If you were in charge, would you remember that I love you based upon no merit of your own? If you were in charge, would you remember the gospel? 
You want to know his anger? He said, you don't want sanctification. You want perfection. So you don't have to depend on my righteousness. You could boast in yours. Y'all, I'm walking in the mall and Jesus hit me with a holy clap back. So maybe, just maybe, it's best that God is in charge of our sanctification. Y'all, David is not sinless, but if we slow down, we notice something here. This time, repentance comes before the prophet. Y'all remember David's last major blunder? Y'all remember? He, He sees a woman on a roof, calls her to his room, has his way with her, gets her pregnant, tries to cover it up. That fails. So then he just kills her husband and thinks he got away with it. He washed his hands. And it's not till the prophet comes. Y'all, this is the classic example of the devil, by the way, using our sin to bury us. Sin after sin after sin, hardening our hearts to the evil of what we've done. And in God's grace, God sends him a prophet, and it's only then that David repents. But if we fast forward to today, what do we see? We see that David has grown, hasn't he? Not only is his sin far less grievous, far less compounding, far less repetitive, he repents before the prophet gets there. God was up to something. Y'all turn your neighbor and tell him, trust the process. Do you see God's process in David's sanctification? It was not David's righteousness that revealed to him his need for God and his own failure. But it was his, it was a sin. Y'all get this. David had been religious long enough to mistake his sin's subtleness for sinlessness. You ever been there? Man, I'm doing a great job. Whoa, look at me. It's been four weeks since I sinned. No, you're not sinless. You're just better at hiding it. But the God who saw to the core of David's being would have none of it. Because he knows that the sin hidden deep in our hearts is just as deadly as the sin of our hands. It seems to me that God allows David to sin in order that David might realize his own sinfulness. So may I submit to you, you who is frustrated with your imperfections, God's not done with you. You who is broken over your repetitive sin, God is up to something. The apostles tell us that if we confess our sin, then he is faithful. He is righteous to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is what we see, that the testimony of Scripture tells us that confessing and repenting are primary tools of our sanctification. As David repented, as he confessed, our faithful God was forgiving his sin and cleansing him of unrighteousness. The thing that David longed for in holiness, God was doing in him as he confessed the sin that God ordained. Do you see this? Only our God could design a process in which we are simultaneously growing in both humility and holiness. Y'all, he knows what he's doing. 
So hear me. If you're struggling and you're fighting and you love Jesus and you hate your sin, hear me, your sin does not disqualify you from God's love. Because God, what we see in the text is God is not holding us to a standard of perfection. He's holding us instead to a standard of repentance and faith. So confess your sin. Repent from your sin. Turn from your sin. Run from your sin. And our faithful God promises to cleanse you. So now it's at this point that I need to remind us that David is still responsible. God was sovereign over David's sin, but it was still a result of David's sinful and broken heart. David was still responsible, and here's the reality that parents know and children hate. It's the consequences of our actions that transform us. David will not escape the consequences of his sin even though God ordained it. And hear me, this is a good thing. Hebrews 12 tells us, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when he reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes everyone he receives as a son. So get this, when David wakes up in the morning, he's not getting up to rainbows and butterflies. Not to bird chirps and fruit loops. No, he's getting up to the discipline of his father. Verse 11 When David got up in the morning, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David and told him the choices and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come to your land or to flee from your foes for three months while they pursue you or to have a plague in your land for three days? Now consider carefully what answer you should give to the Lord. Y'all, some of y'all have been here before. Y'all know y'all have. At least a couple of y'all, right? You done did something wrong the night before? Thought you got away with it and woke up to your mama talking about something. Which one you want? <laughs> you, you, you want the belt or the switch? <laughs> right, right? You want to you be on punishment or you want a whooping? Punishment is like the black version of grounding. That's what, that's what we had in my house. Y'all, one time I ran away from my uh, parents' house while my dad was whooping my sister. I'm not going to tell y'all the whole story, but this is what happened. I ran away, and the police brought me home the night after. And my daddy was sitting there, and he was like, yo, I'm not going to chase you, but you can take this whooping now, or you're going to be on punishment until you get it. So I held out like two weeks, and I took my whooping like a man. And here's the thing, here's the thing, I I realized, like, parents be using psychological warfare. Like, they wanted me to choose my punishment, and this week I found out they got it from God. Like, this is, this is crazy. And so let's look at David's response. In verse 14, he's like, yo, I have great anxiety over this. But then look what he says. He says, please let us fall into the Lord's hands. Because his mercies are great, but don't let me fall into human hands. You see, David had experienced the famine just two chapters earlier. He had been on the run from his enemies for years. He knew what these punishments were like, but that is not the reason he chose option three. 
He chooses option three because he trusted in the great mercies of God. Do you see the 180 that God is cultivating in David's heart? He goes from counting the troops so that he could be self-sufficient to casting himself desperately on the great grace of God. God was up to something in the midst of David's sin. And it was in discipline that he saw him rightly. Do you see God's purposes in ordaining it? How he was sovereign over it, how he was kind in the midst of it. All the while, he is changing him, molding him, fashioning him to trust. So we get to verse 15, and we get the punishment. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. This is tough. And it feels harsh. But let me say three things to help us here. One, remember, this is not only a response to David's sin. Remember in verse one, God was already angry with the people. Their sin had caused God's anger. They had done evil, never repenting, never relenting, never returning. And so God punishes them, and this is what the scripture tells us. It tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that is a hard reality, but you tell me, if our sin destroys us, and it destroys those around us, and it destroys God's good world, then is the creator not right to cleanse the world of sin and sinners? And secondly, we must see that God's wisdom is on full display here. He removes David's idol. His sin had led him to number the people, and God graciously opens his eyes to the faulty foundation of the army he was trying to build his life upon. The strength of his army was sand compared to the rock of Jesus. And finally, and most importantly, this text is not about condemnation. Y'all, there is one verse of punishment in a chapter full of sin. The sins of the people, the sins of the king, and God is right to punish. And yet, by the time we arrive at verse 16, we are experiencing the lavish grace of God that David anticipated. We see the angel of the Lord stretching out his hand, but the Lord tells him, relent concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. Do you see God's grace here? And y'all better brace yourself, because here comes the gospel. Verse 17, when David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? And they had done plenty. But he says, please let your hand be against me and my father's family. David sees the destruction. He feels his guilt. And he instinctively cries out, oh God, pour out your wrath on me. It's me who sinned. And this is how the rest of the chapter finishes. Verse 18, God came to David and said to him, go set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So Arana sees David coming. 
He's like, yo, you coming to make a sacrifice? That's great. Here, you can have the land. You can have the bulls. David's like, no, I'm going to pay for it. I'm not going to give the Lord nothing I didn't pay for. David refuses. He buys the land and he makes the sacrifice. But can we be honest? This is strange. Like, this is a strange turn of events. Like, how do we go from apocalyptic plague to sacrificing a few animals? Like, how, how does God go from the wages of sin or death to never mind just bring me a bull? Like, by the time we get to verse 16, God has decided not to punish David or the people. How can he be so gracious? David deserved to pay for his sin. Didn't he? Like the people deserve to pay for their sin. We, we deserve to pay for our sin. How can the blood of goats and bulls pay for sin? Scripture tells us they can't. So then who will pay? Who will pay for their sin? And more pressingly, who will pay for ours? David volunteers in verse 17. He cries out, let me be the sacrifice for the people. But could he be the sacrifice that God had in mind? David could not pay for the sins of the people. He couldn't even pay for his own sins. He was an inadequate sacrifice. David sees the suffering of the people and he cries out in verse 17, let me save them, Lord. Let me avert their punishment. They deserve this. He saw himself as a great warrior, didn't he? As their protector. But in the end, he was an inadequate savior. And as we zoom out, we see the point of this final chapter. This is how the author is closing the entire book of 1 and 2 Samuel. David is not the sacrifice the people needed. He is not the savior the people needed. He is not the king the people needed. The final image we get of David is as this failed king whose sin wreaks havoc on his kingdom. And even though the author's final portrait of David is this broken and bended knee man, if we examine the portrait closely, we see him pointing. Can you see it? This man, broken, and on bending knee, pointing away from himself into another. A thousand years later, God would grant David's request for the wrath of God to be poured out on his household. Y'all, on a little hill, not far from the threshing floor of David's sacrifice, the very Son of God would step into our place and pay for our sin. He would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Y'all, a thousand years later, the devil would be right back at it, using the tool of our sin to bury the very Son of God. But God had ordained it all. Jesus would take the full brunt of God's wrath, stored up for us. Jesus is the better Savior. But he ain't just a sacrifice. And he ain't just the Savior. Because y'all on the third day. Y'all on the third day. Come on. Do you know what happened on the third day? 
our king of glory broke his lease with that rich man's tomb. And he got up out of the grave. And he is seated at the right hand of the father. Jesus is the king we needed. Y'all, the old saints used to say it like this. They would say, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him on and on. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. You are good. You are kind. You are perfect. You are holy. And we love you. We love you. So God, we give ourselves to you as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable. There's likely someone who's been digging and digging and digging and digging. You look up and you know how the hole got this big, but you certainly can't climb out. I tell you that Jesus loves you. He sees you. If you cry out to him this morning, he will run to you. He's a good God, a kind king. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your perfect name. You're holy. Amen.